The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning as we read Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet not he opened his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the, peop- the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. And all God's people said, Pray with me. Father, we ask that you would steady our minds, that you would sharpen our affections, that you would prepare us to come rightly to your table. You've warned that there is great danger and presuming to take the supper as one who is unworthy, not one who has not earned his own place, but to come in an unworthy manner, to come believing that we have somehow earned a place at this table, perhaps to come believing that we have no sin and need of forgiveness, to come while living in broken communion with the body, It's a serious business that we're about this morning, Father. We don't take it lightly. We understand this. 
We understand that you have prepared this table for sinners. Yet, Father, it's only by means of the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ, that we may come. So as we come together, preparing our hearts as a family to take this bread and to take this cup together, we pray that you use the moments that lie ahead to prepare us for that, to think right thoughts, and to recognize just what it cost to purchase our seat here. Father, we love you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and read, shall we? Would you stand to your feet, please? We continue working verse by verse through the 15th chapter of Mark's gospel. We've come to the end of that chapter. It's the 42nd verse. This is the word of God. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in a linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, was there as well. They saw where he was laid. All God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Again, Father, we confess our inability to rightly do what needs to happen next, so we ask you to do it. We ask by your spirit that you would help us to rightly see and hear and understand and respond to these words. Again, it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So one of the keys to rightly understanding any sort of literary text One of the keys to interpreting any passage of scripture that we come to is thinking through and understanding the purpose for the writing. Long before we try to apply anything that this says to our own life, before we even try to understand what these words mean, we do well to ask ourselves, why is this person telling me this? What are they hoping to accomplish? If we don't take time to ask that question and then dig deeply enough to find the answers to it, are very likely to miss the mark. Now, thankfully, with regards to Mark's gospel, while he does not give us an express statement of intent like Luke or John, we can come to the very first verse and we get a very clear picture of why Mark is writing these words. Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is presenting to us a gospel, a euangelion, that is good news. Specifically, he's presenting to us the good news about Jesus, who is both the Christ and the Son of God. Now, this is key, because what Mark is writing here for us is not merely a historical biography. Mark has an aim here in everything that he records. Mark didn't wake up one morning and think, you know, the life of Jesus was just fascinating. I bet a whole bunch of people would like to read about it. Mark has a purpose in this. His purpose is to provide us, the readers, with evidence, with proof that this man, this historical man called Jesus of Nazareth, that he truly was the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And this reality, this truth, this evidence of who Jesus was and all that he accomplished, he declares it to be good news. The Apostle Paul tells us why. Because we might be tempted to ask, well, why would we care? 
Why do we care about the identity of some man that lived 2,000 years ago? Even a life as fascinating as this, even an identity as unique as Jesus, why would we care? Why should that be good news to us? Well, in the beginning of his letter to the Romans, Romans 1.16, he tells us that this gospel, it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. This gospel, this identity of Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished, the news of who Jesus is as the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, it is the power of God. It is the means by which he saves men. So that everyone who comes to believe this, everyone who reads this evidence and comes to recognize that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, they will be saved. So with that in mind, in a very real way, we might look to John's gospel. We might allow him to speak because he does give us an express statement of intent. We might read the words that John has given us in his gospel and allow them to speak for all the other gospel writers. He says this in John 20, verse 30. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. As he comes to the very end of this gospel, he says this, that Jesus did so many things that if we were to record every single one of them, there would not be enough space in all the world to contain the books that told us of all that Jesus had done. So as we think back to everything that we've just read, we need to understand this. This man called Jesus of Nazareth, he had a fascinating and incredibly fruitful life. The story of his life is so magnificent and so complex that it would not be possible for all the information surrounding who he is to be contained on this earth. And so these things, these portions of Jesus' life, they have been given to us, they have been passed down through the generations that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. That's the goal. That's the purpose. Every portion of what Mark records for us here, it is meant by God, chosen by God to bring his people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now there's some portions of this, it seems real obvious. Jesus walking on the water. Jesus feeding the 5,000. Jesus raising men from the dead. You look at that and say, only God could do that. But then there's other portions we come to and we have to wonder, how does this fit? I don't understand what this has to do with Jesus being the Christ. I'm not sure how this is evidence that he is the one who can save us. This morning's text would seem to be one of those. The burial of Jesus. How does this fit into the picture of who Jesus is? How does this provide us evidence as to his identity? And how does this fill us with any hope that he is the one who will save? Why does scripture seem to make such a big deal out of the burial of Jesus? Dear friends, you must make no mistake. Scripture makes a very very big deal about the, the burial of Jesus. All four gospel writers, they give substantial portions of their writings to the burial of Jesus. Not only this, but think about the earliest of Christian creeds. Think about what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that he delivers to us that which has been passed on, which is of a most importance. And what he delivers to us is the truth that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that on the third day he rose according to the scriptures. Jesus died for our sins. He was buried, and three days later he rose again. The very core of the confession, the very core of the Christian confession, our very earliest of creeds, we find this, the burial of Jesus Christ. So why? Why does it matter? Isn't that what dead people do? Isn't that what you do with dead people to be more precise? You bury them. You put them in the ground. So why would they pay so much emphasis upon this? 
Oh, and all four gospel writers see fit to give us all the, all the surrounding events that go with Jesus' burial. Why is it important for us to confess with our mouth that not only had Jesus died, but that he was buried before rising again? Well, as with almost everything, there are varying schools of thought with regards to why this matters. There's a number of people that think that this was just to show us that Jesus had, in fact, died. That God, of course, knew that men were going to come along and they were going to try to twist this truth. They were going to seek to suppress the reality that Jesus had actually died. You've heard all the, you've heard all the misgivings, all the, all the faulty teachings that go along with this, that Jesus just swooned, that somebody else perhaps had taken Jesus' place upon the cross. And so God, knowing all this, and knowing that men were going to be likely to fall for these kind of lies, he made certain that he surrounded Jesus with men who knew death. Surrounded Jesus with men who knew what it looked like for a man to be dead. And then had those men placing Jesus within a tomb. That this was evidence, this was proof, in fact, that Jesus had died. Now certainly there's no doubt to this, there's legitimacy to this argument. We will see as we work through this text that God went through great lengths to make certain that we recognize that Jesus was dead. Dead, dead, fully dead. And yet I think there's something more at play than that. So over the last several months, over and over again, I've talked to you about the two stages, two states, I always say stages, the two states of Christ. His state of humiliation leading to a state of exaltation. We've talked often about the fact that from the very moment of his incarnation, merely the matter of stepping down from heaven and coming to earth, being born of a woman, taking upon himself the form of a servant, living as a man surrounded by sinful flesh, and then certainly as the end of his life has come, the beating, the mockery, the accusation, and of course the crucifixion. The entirety of Jesus' life was so marked with humiliation. It was such a gigantic step down from the glories of heaven that we could rightly call it his humiliation. Now this does not mean that there's no glory to be seen in the life of Jesus. We see it all throughout. Think about Jesus' baptism, his father's voice from heaven. This is my son with whom I am pleased. Think about the Mount of Transfiguration as he pulls back the veil, pulls back the curtain to his flesh and reveals that radiant glory that had always been his. Even just in the power and the authority of his teaching and his healing and his many mighty works. Over and over again, we see the glory of God just peeking through the flesh of Jesus Christ. And yet in a very real way, it was always hidden. It was always hidden behind that flesh, the whole of Jesus' earthly life. Until he accomplished his mission. Until he had satisfied all that his father gave him to do, glorifying the father ransoming men to himself it was then that we know that jesus was fully exalted we read philippians 2 8 through 9 that jesus having been found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and therefore god has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every other name again i say humiliation leading to exaltation that was the joy for which jesus pressed on that was the joy for which he endured this suffering and this shame and this humiliation, the joy of his own exaltation. But the question that many ask is, when did this exaltation begin? You see, there's some that they look at the, the anointing of Jesus just before the beginning of this week that we've been studying, this Passion Week. Others, maybe they look at Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And they say, well, surely those are the moments in which Jesus' exaltation began in earnest. The problem is, immediately following those were some of his greatest moments of shame and humiliation. There's other people that say, well, then the exaltation, it didn't begin until Jesus rose from the grave. It wasn't until the resurrection, when Jesus first entered into this public state of exaltation, this first revelation of Jesus' glorious and honorable body. And certainly I agree that in the resurrection, in the ascension, 
and Jesus' reception into heaven at the right hand of his Father where he reigns today with all power and authority and majesty. That that is the ultimate picture, an incomparable moment, the ultimate and very height of Jesus' exaltation. But it seems to me, it seems to other theologians a whole lot smarter than me, but it seems to me that the exaltation of Jesus actually begins right here in this text that we read this morning, that that's the purpose. That's why so much focus is given to the burial of Jesus Christ. That what we witness in this morning's text, it's a shift. It's a shift from everything we've been reading all these previous weeks. I would ask you to look and see if you see that as we work through this text line by line. Look and see if there's not a noticeable change in the way that Jesus is treated, even in his death. I ask you to take note and see if you don't agree that this is truly the beginnings of Jesus' exaltation, the way that his body is handled. So before we jump into Mark's text and begin working line by line, I want you to think back to something, a very familiar story I'm sure to most of you. We find it in John's gospel, John chapter 19. We're told that both Mark and John, they tell us that this was the day of preparation. Now that's just a Jewish way of saying it was Friday. The day of preparation, this was the day of preparation for the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath, of course, was Saturday. So this day, this day that had been set apart before that, this Friday, this was called the day of preparation because the Sabbath day was meant to be a day of rest. Much like God rested on the seventh day from his work, his people were to rest on the Sabbath day from all of their ordinary work. So we studied a lot of conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees, the other religious leaders surrounding the Sabbath. They had taken God's restriction, God's, God's command to rest on the Sabbath. It was meant to be a gift to man, an opportunity for us to set, ti- set time apart, to rest our bodies and to remind us that this world doesn't keep spinning because of us. And yet they had piled all types of restrictions and burdens upon the Sabbath. And yet what we know is that if you know that you've got an entire day that's set apart where you can't collect water, you can't travel any great distance. You can't even start a fire to cook your food. You know that the day before, you're going to get all your preparations done. You're going to do all your work that you need to do before the sun goes down on this Friday. That's why it's called the day of preparation. That's Friday, the day of preparation for the Sabbath. But we also know from John's gospel that this Sabbath was a high day. You see, not only was every Saturday to be set apart as a holy Sabbath, a day of rest unto God, but there were certain Sabbath feasts They went along with the festivals where God would set apart a day and say, this day also belongs to me. You will also rest from your ordinary work on this day. So it was possible then, because these feasts didn't always fall on an ordinary Sabbath, it was possible then for you to have multiple Sabbaths in the same week. Are you following me? If perhaps the feast fell on a Wednesday, you would take that day as a Sabbath, and then three days later you'd have your ordinary Sabbath day. And yet what it seems that John is telling us here, not everyone agrees with this, but it seems that what John is telling us here is this day was not just the ordinary Sabbath. This was a feast Sabbath, specifically the Passover Sabbath. Truly a high and holy day. So these men, they needed to get all their preparations done. They needed to get everything ready before the day came, before the Sabbath came, the day of rest. In addition to this, we know that to allow a criminal to remain upon a cross, God had forbidden this, not just on a Sabbath day. He had said in Deuteronomy 21, that if a man is convicted of a capital punishment, he is hung upon a cross and dies, you shall not leave his body there overnight because this land that I've given you, this precious land that I've set aside to you, this land would become defiled because this man is truly accursed. So you shall not leave him upon the cross. And so what we know is that the the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they went to Pilate and they said, Pilate, we're worried that this man, these men, that they're going to die on the Sabbath day. We won't be able to take them down and therefore our feast and our land will become defiled. So Sabbath, what we're at, Pilate, what we're asking you to do is to go and have these men's legs broken. 
break their leg, and this will hasten their death because no longer can they push up on their feet and get a good deep breath. So we're asking you to go and break the men's legs so that they cannot breathe any longer so that they will give in to death and die. But you know the rest of the story. His soldiers went just as Pilate had commanded. They showed up. They broke the legs of the criminals on the left and the right of Jesus. But when they came to the Lord, they found that he was already dead. You know why? Because he's given up his life. No man would take it from him through breaking his legs or any other means. Jesus Christ cried out to the Father. He bowed his head. He breathed his last, gave up his spirit, and died. So when this man came to Jesus, determining that Jesus was dead, now these soldiers, they wouldn't just ignore a direct order from Pilate. These soldiers, they knew that both Pilate and the Jewish man wanted these guys dead before sundown. Now we know that Jesus died sometime shortly after 3 o'clock. That means the sun's getting low in the sky. They know the clock is ticking. And yet these men, these men who were well acquainted with death, they looked at Jesus Christ and they knew he's already dead. And yet for some reason, I think it was for our sake, I think it was to prove to us that he was dead. The soldier takes the spear, he thrusts it through Jesus' side, and out comes water and blood. Again, evidence that Jesus has in fact succumbed to death. He is dead. Now John goes on to tell us that the reason behind all this, there's a reason that all this was given to us, the reason that Jesus' death is pulling down off the cross his burial that all of this took place was so that the scriptures could be fulfilled specifically the scriptures that not one of his bones would be broken this fulfills the word of psalm 34 saying exactly that he keeps all his bones not one of them is broken but there's even greater picture beyond this you see when we come to the teaching about the passover god's instruction to his people about how they're to observe the passover you come to exodus 12 or numbers 9 he explicitly says in his law that the passover lamb is to die intact None of his limbs, none of his bones are to be broken. You're to offer the best of what you have to God. Something precious, not some lame little lamb that's out there wandering around in the field. And so just as all those Passover lambs, the hundreds, the thousands, perhaps millions of Passover lambs that have been slaughtered in all the years from the Exodus till now, the true Passover lamb, the lamb of God that came to give his life as a ransom for many, to save men by his death, that the true Passover lamb of God, neither would his bones be broken in addition to this the scripture says that in Zechariah 12 that he would be pierced that we would look upon the one who has been pierced and so we see this even in the death of Jesus Christ even as he is truly dead as the son of God he's still orchestrating all of these events exactly as God had decreed exactly as the prophets had foretold his body would be cared for not a bone would be broken and his side would be pierced so now we come to Mark's text verse 42 and when evening had come, since it was a day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Again, we've, we've covered that, but he calls this the evening. Now, Jewish people, they often spoke of two evenings. There was an early evening and a late evening. The early evening was between the hours of 3 and 6 o'clock. We might call this late afternoon. So that's where we're talking about here. The sun, again, is getting low in the sky, but it hasn't yet set. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, church, I told you several times in the last couple of weeks to take note of how Jesus in his final moments, he was fulfilling exactly what he said he would do. Back in John 12, 32, he says that when I am lifted up from the earth, speaking of the way in which he would die, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus spoke in very similar terms back in John chapter 3. He says that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
I told you that as Jesus is lifted up upon the cross, he's drawing men to himself, that as those men look upon him and believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God, as they come to have faith in him, they might gain eternal life. And I've asked you to watch the way he's calling men, he's drawing men to himself, even as he himself is in chains. Even as all the soldiers and all the Romans and all the Jewish people, even as they would seem to be in complete control, I ask you to watch the way that Jesus still, in his very zenith of his suffering, was calling men to himself. You think about the criminal next to him on the cross. You think about this centurion that looked upon him in faith, and now you see this man called Joseph of Arimathea, perhaps the most surprising of all of them. Because this guy, he, he wasn't a despised criminal. He wasn't a Roman soldier. He was not some clear and obvious outsider. We're told that this man was a respected member of the council. That is the Sanhedrin. That means he was amongst those men that despised Jesus. They conspired with Judas to arrest Jesus. They held the kangaroo court to condemn Jesus. They went to Pilate to demand, to demand the death of Jesus. Joseph was a respected member of that group. And yet he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Now this was a coveted position. This was a coveted position of power and prosperity. Because if we look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew 27, it tells us that Joseph was a rich man. But yet again, it tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. He was a follower of Jesus. And this is truly shocking. For a man to be both a member of the Sanhedrin and a follower of Jesus Christ, these things would seem to be almost mutually exclusive, wouldn't they? Knowing all that we studied about the Sanhedrin, those two things would not seem to have a place together. And yet likely we know that Joseph was not alone in this. We read back in John chapter 12, verse 42, that many, even of the authorities, believed in Jesus. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of their synagogues. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So it seems as though there was a number of Jewish leaders, perhaps many within the council, who had come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we shouldn't be all that surprised by that, I suppose. Because think about it. Who paid closer attention to Jesus' teaching than the bad guys? Who, played, who paid closer attention, constantly watching every last move that Jesus made than the Sanhedrin, always watching and trying to trip him up? So would we be all that surprised if God would use their evil intentions to save some of them? Doesn't this seem like exactly the kind of thing that God would do? And so we learn that this man, this man called Joseph, Mark tells us that he was also looking for the kingdom of God. I can't help but think of the old man called Simeon that we referred to last week. The man who came into the temple in the spirit looking for the redemption of Israel. Looking for the salvation that would come with the coming of the kingdom of God. And then laying eyes upon the Christ child, taking him in his arms. He knew, I can die a happy man. For I have truly seen the salvation of Israel. More than that, this light, this message, this gospel that will go out to the Gentiles. We're told that this Joseph was also looking for the kingdom. He didn't see Jesus as a babe. He saw him as a grown man, and yet he recognized the same thing, that the eternal king had come. Now Luke tells us, Luke 20, verse 50, that Joseph was a good and righteous man who had not consented to the council's decision or action. So Joseph was a righteous man, and in his righteousness, listen, you didn't have to believe that Jesus was the Christ. You didn't have to believe that Jesus was the Son of God to know that he was a righteous man and had done nothing deserving of death. Look at Pilate. And so Joseph is a righteous man. He did not consent. He did not agree to the accusations made against Jesus, to the actions taken by these men, or their decision to have him put to death. But this can be a little confusing, right? Because you remember back when we studied the trial, when we studied the religious trial of Jesus and how they continued to come against him with questions, and he wouldn't answer anything they had to say until it came to the issue of his identity. 
And he said indeed that he is the Christ, the Son of the Most High God. And the high priest tore his garments and he cried out, what further uh, evidence do you need? He's confessed with his own mouth. This is blasphemy. And we read there that after he says this, they all condemned him as deserving of death. So we don't know what happened there. Did Joseph simply abstain from the vote? We know that the trial took place sometime after midnight, so was Joseph home in bed and he didn't get news of the trial? Or perhaps were there some people within the group that they had caught on to the fact that perhaps this man does have some allegiance to Jesus and they didn't invite him to the meeting. But whatever the case, Joseph of Arimathea did not support the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. And yet, neither he nor any other believing members of the Sanhedrin, none of them would speak up in public because there was too much to lose. Not just fame, not just wealth, You'd get kicked out of your own synagogue if you did something like this. That's why John tells us in John 19, 38, he tells us that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. What a sorry, sorry statement. All around a sorry statement. The Jewish people did not believe in Jesus Christ, but they weren't content in their unbelief they had to attack and do everything they could to dissuade those who did believe. I'm starting to wonder if there's anyone sorrier than someone that goes to someone else and tries to attack them, dissuade them, assault them, drive them into fear based on their belief. But then these cowards... How did they respond? Did they stand up? Did they say, I'm with Jesus Christ and I don't care what the cost? This is what I believe and I don't care the assault you bring against me? No, they cowered in fear, refusing to openly profess that Jesus was the Christ. The scripture tells us it's because they love the glory of men more than the glory that comes from God. You have to imagine within this was fear and praise. It was equal parts. That's what drives us to act the way that we do, isn't it? That's what drives us to keep our mouth shut when we know that we should, we should speak the truth. It's because we're afraid of the backlash and we desire to be loved by men. And that's exactly where these men found themselves. And yet before we get too hard on Joseph, we find that he took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. What a strange time to go public. You had come to believe that Jesus was the Christ and that with him came the kingdom of God. Now he's dead. All the other disciples have run because they assume that whatever hopes they had for him, those are all dashed now, aren't they? He's dead. The man we thought was king is dead. So now while everyone else has run away, now's the time that Joseph suddenly decides, now I'm going to muster the courage. Now I'm going to let not only my love for Jesus be known, but I'm going to go to Pilate and ask for his body. From a purely human perspective, this makes no sense at all. Unless perhaps he was ashamed and convicted, having seen the way Jesus endured his suffering. He endured his pain and he pressed on without even the slightest hesitation. But whether driven by love or conviction or shame or whatever means God used to bring this man to this point, Joseph mustered the courage. Even while the Sanhedrin were still in the area. Remember, they were the ones that had come to Pilate and asked that the men have their legs broken. So it would seem as though this man, came to, came to, this man called Joseph came to Pilate sometime around this moment. Because we read in verse 44 that Pilate was surprised to hear that he, that is Jesus, should have already died. Now, crucifixions, I told you, sometimes they could last for days. Certainly, he, wouldn't have, he would have expected Jesus to last more than a couple of hours. 
And so it seems as though what's happened is, this is sometime after Pilate has sent the soldiers to break the men's legs, but before they've returned with news, because he doesn't yet know that Jesus is dead. And so he sends word, Pilate summons a centurion. Now it's not far from the praetorium to Golgotha, no matter where you believe Golgotha is, it's close, just outside the city gates. So it wouldn't have been hard for him to summon the, the centurion to come to him, and he does, he comes. I have to believe this is the same centurion that we learned from last week. This one is now a new, a fresh, a brand new believer in Jesus Christ. He's seen the way he breathed his last, and he recognized that truly this was an innocent man. Truly, this was the Son of God. And now here we see God using this man again to confirm. Again, this is not just a man that had seen people die. This is a man who gained his living by making sure that condemned men were really dead. And we see him being called by Pilate. So Pilate summoned the centurion. He asked him whether Jesus was already dead. Verse 45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Now this was not normal. I need you to see God's providential hand at work here. Traditionally, when men were crucified in Jerusalem, they were left up upon a cross for days on end. They were left there to rot. This was a deterrent to other people. Anyone else that would try an insurrection like this, anyone else that would get so bold as to try something like this, look at what your end will be. So oftentimes they would allow men to hang upon a cross for days on end as a, as a warning to other people, don't follow after this man. And yet we know that Jesus must be in the cross on this day. I mean, in the grave, excuse me, on this day, on Good Friday. The Lord must be in the tomb for three days before the end of Friday, all day Saturday, and early on Easter Sunday morning. That's the way Jewish people count days. That for three days, Jesus must be in that tomb. And so God's providential hand is working all of this together to make sure that at this moment, Jesus would come off the cross before the sun goes down. But even then, even as most criminals like this were taken down off of the cross, they weren't often handed over to strangers. Now, if you had family, if you had family with some means or some ability to care for your body, Pilate might be willing, he might be, able, he might be willing to entertain your request to give the, his body, to give the criminal's body over to his family. But most Perhaps the vast majority of condemned men like this, they were not buried in a tomb. They were thrown in a city dump. There was a place outside the walls. It's just to the southwest of the city of Jerusalem. There's a place there. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. It's also called Gehenna. You've heard that word before, haven't you? It's the Jewish metaphor for hell. It's a place where people piled up. They filled this place with all their trash and feces and rotting corpses. In addition to this, there was fire there. That's the way you get rid of trash. There was fire there to make sure that it didn't overwhelm them. And because they were constantly pouring more trash and more rubbish and more refuse into this place, the fires never went out. And whenever you've got all this trash, whenever you've got all this rubbish, whenever you've got rotting corpses laying in a place, there's worms. The worms never run out of food, so they never die. This is Gehenna. This is exactly the way Jesus described hell. You remember as he was warning us about the dangers of sin, Mark 9, 47 to 48, he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. When Jesus paints these pictures, when he says these words to people, their minds immediately went to Gehenna. They immediately had a physical picture, a stinky a grotesque, a repulsive picture of the eternal realities of hell. So he's drawing their minds there immediately when he talks to them about the place that awaits sinful men. But now, God has promised. 
God had promised and King David had prophesied, Psalm 16:10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Not only would not one of Jesus' bones be broken, he would die fully intact, just like the perfect Passover lamb, but his body would not be thrown upon the fires of Gehenna. He would be entrusted to a rich man. So we learn that this rich man went and bought a shroud, verse 46. Jesus would not be buried naked. He would not be wrapped in used or filthy rags. This man, he bought a linen shroud, and then he goes to Golgotha. He carefully removes the Lord from the cross, and this is such a tender moment to me. I can just picture it in my mind's eye. Surely Joseph had some servants, I would imagine, that went and helped him. It's not easy to take a man down off a cross. And yet I've got this picture of just such tenderness as he cares for the Lord's body. He pulls him down and he he cleans him up. He takes this fresh linen shroud that he's just purchased and he's doing this in the eyesight of everyone. Just moments earlier, he would not confess the name of Jesus Christ. Just moments earlier, he was afraid to be associated with Jesus because the cost was too high. And yet now that Jesus was dead, now that it would seem as though he had nothing to gain whatsoever, he doesn't care anymore. He's not worried about being thrown out of the synagogue. He's not worried about losing his place amongst the Sanhedrin. He's not worried about Pilate or the other Romans thinking that he himself is an insurrectionist. He just knows this is the right thing to do, especially for this righteous man. You must honor the bodies of your dead. So tenderly, carefully, he takes down the body of his Lord. He cleans him up. And he wrapped him in the linen shroud is what verse 46 tells us. John tells us is at this point that Nicodemus joins Joseph. Now you know Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. He too was a ruler of the Jews. We read back in the third chapter of John's gospel that he had come. He had come to Jesus under the, under the darkness of night. He had seen the works that Jesus did and he knew that no man could do these works unless he had come from God. And yet he was not saved. He had not yet been born again. There was still so much confusion. But something happened. We're not told exactly what, but something happened between the third chapter and the 19th chapter of John's gospel, and Nicodemus was saved. And we find him here also, these two leaders amongst the Jewish people. All the rest of the Jewish people have denied Jesus. The rest of the Jewish people, they demanded his death. This is not a totality of the Jewish people, but a full representation of the Jewish people. They have rejected Jesus as king. They have demanded his death. And yeah, these two unlikely men, these men with much to lose, they're there. We read that Nicodemus bought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, that they took this and they wrapped it up with the linen shroud on Jesus' body. On his corpse is the word that's used, Toma, making clear that he is dead. Now, they didn't embalm bodies back then the way that we do today. Jewish people, they they buried their dead very, very quickly. They still do today, as a matter of fact. When we were there standing on the Mount of Olives, we watched a ceremony going on. Do you remember this, Leanne? Just down to the right of where we were standing. I was busy grabbing rocks and putting them in my pockets. I wanted, I think that's legal. Edit that out if not. Taking rocks from the Mount of Olives and putting them in my pockets. But there was a service right down here. And that man hadn't been dead more than hours. They didn't remove, they didn't drain the blood. They didn't remove all of the, all of the organs and all of these things. And so what you would do is you would care for your body very quickly. You would take the body, you would wrap it in some type of cloth, whatever you could get your hands on. And then you would put spices or whatever else you could get to bring down the odor to make sure that there wasn't too much of a stench there. So Joseph and Nicodemus, they care for Jesus' body and they laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. So Jesus is buried. Now, if you're paying attention, you might be thinking, Josh, you told me there was a turning point somewhere in this story. 
Now look, it's sweet that these two men cared for Jesus' body. It's, it's kind, it's gentle, it's loving. It's nice that he wasn't thrown on the fire of Gehenna where he would burn and there would be worms there to eat him up. That's, that's, all, that's all kind and that's good, but isn't that just an ordinary Jewish burial? Where's the exaltation in this? Where's the glory to be seen in taking Jesus' body? Sure, it was a new linen swell. They wrapped him up in a fresh sheet, awesome, but they buried him in a cave. Isn't that what awaited all the Jewish people? That's why we gotta look at the other accounts. That's why I praise God that he's given us four gospels where we can just get this just perfect picture of all that happened here. John tells us that the tomb in which Jesus was laid, it was in a garden next to the place of crucifixion. Now, I've been to the garden tomb in Jerusalem, and I don't think that's the actual place where Jesus was buried, but it looks an awful lot like it should have been. It's a nice, quiet, beautiful garden. Now, the place where Jesus was probably actually buried, it's a big old gaudy church now, and so I'm thankful that we have a garden tomb that we can look at and get some sense of what it would have looked like. But we're told that this was a garden. Now, we're told that, we're not told that Joseph had to go and ask permission from anybody else to bury Jesus in this tomb. He had to ask for his body, but he didn't have to ask the, for the right that he would have access to this tomb. And so it seems to me that Joseph of Arimathea, he owned this plot as a rich man. He owned this garden. We read in Luke's gospel that this was a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Now that probably doesn't sound like a big deal to most of you. We don't usually borrow coffins. We don't usually reuse tombs. But in Israel, this was truly a rare, rare thing. Amongst the Jewish people, typically, if you had a cave like this, if your people were buried in a tomb, a rock tomb like this, typically it would be shared amongst all the generations of your family. What would happen is you would go into the cave and along, along the wall there would be these stone ledges, almost like, almost like cots made out of rock. And so the, the next person to die, whoever that was, you would treat their body, wrap them up, put some spices, and then you would lay them down on these little benches along the wall in the cave. Eventually nature would take its course. That corpse would turn into bones. You would come in and collect those bones and put them in a jar or a box and then put that somewhere else in the cave to make room for the next family member that died. Are you following me? And so whenever we read in the Old Testament about men who died and went to their fathers, quite literally, they went to their fathers. You think about Abraham and all the effort he went through to buy that field with the cave at Mexpah. The, 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 the effort that he went through that he could buy this field, that he could have this cave, that he could bury Sarah there, that he himself would be buried there with her and his children. This is the, this is the way in which the people, think about Joseph. If he was in Egypt, he made his brothers swear that they would take his bones and would not leave them there, but take his bones with them. So truly, this was a big, big deal to the Jewish people. I gotta be honest with you. I'm finding myself more and more often since I've become a pastor rethinking some things that I thought I was really, really solid on. My studies this week have caused me to give some serious reconsideration to my thoughts about my own funeral. Just the, the way in which I see God's people, the faithful people of God caring for the, the bodies of their dead. That's a different story for a different time. The, the point is that it was, it was a rare thing to have a tomb that had not yet been. It would have taken a rich man. It would have taken a rich man to afford a cave, to afford a tomb, to afford a place that no one had yet been laid in. That he wouldn't have to bury his dead in the family tomb where everybody else was. And yet, that's what we see. And I pray that you're getting the picture by now. That's why I had David read the first nine chapter, first nine verses excuse me, of Isaiah 53 earlier. Because you, you, you see the constant humiliation, don't you, as you're reading through it. That he was despised. He was rejected. That men turned their face away. That he was beaten that he was smitten, 
that he was stricken, that he was, that he was, he was taking our sins upon himself. And then we come to that ninth verse where it says, I read this out of the NASB because I think it's clear here. I'm not trying to play games with you. But I read out of the NASB and it says that his grave was assigned with wicked men. That's where your grave should be, Jesus, if you are in fact a wicked man. Like all the rest of wicked men, you get thrown on the trash heap of Gehenna. You burn in the fires of Gehenna. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. Are you seeing it now? Jesus Christ, in his lifetime, what did he own? Nothing. Hardly a change of clothes, not a home, not a nickel to his name. And yet, what do we see in the moment of his death? It's proof of his, pro- of his father's pleasure. It's proof that he had accomplished all that he had come to do. It's the very first sign of his exaltation. You won't go to Gehenna. You won't be thrown in a field. You won't even lie in a borrowed tomb like the average Jewish man. You will die and be buried like a king, like a rich man in your death. Do you see it now? Dear friends, that's what we come to celebrate. As we come to the Lord's table today, as we come to the Lord's table every day, we don't just look back on the death of Jesus Christ. He wasn't just setting for us an example. He wasn't just showing to us how much the Father loves him, how much the Father loves us. He was making clear to us that he is the victorious king. And no sooner had he breathed his last than he was finally treated as a king. I pray as we prepare our hearts to come to this table today, I pray that you have that picture in the forefront of your mind. I pray that you recognize all that Jesus Christ endured to buy your place at this table. And I pray that your heart's desire is to be like a Joseph of Arimathea, to, do, to, to proudly proclaim to the world that I love this Christ, that I'm so closely associated with him that I don't, I don't care the cost. I don't care the burden. I don't care who flees from me. I don't care who curses my name, that I love this Jesus Christ and that he is my only hope. He is my sustenance. He is the one that will cause me to endure to the end. That you prepare your heart in these moments to come to this table and that as you meet him here that you would be strengthened. Because, dear friends, there's a whole world out there that's desperately seeking to strike fear into your heart. Seeking to cause you to be quiet about your faith in Jesus Christ. So my hope for many of you today is that that day will change now. That you will find a boldness as you meet with Jesus Christ at this table. As you feast upon his flesh. As you recognize the covenant that has been purchased in his blood. I pray that you'll find a boldness like you've never had before. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that every single promise we found in your holy scriptures, they have found their yes, their amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he did not remain in that tomb. In the coming weeks as we study your word and we celebrate the reality that he walked out victorious, we praise you that with him we too have been raised. Father, I pray you prepare our hearts to come to this table now. I pray, Father, that you would allow us to confess any sin, push us to confess any sin which continues to burden our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would make right with any of the brothers, any of the sisters that we are not right with in the moments that lie ahead. I pray, Father, that you be glorified by every word we speak, every thought we think, as we approach your table. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.